Hello and welcome to Critical to Your Success. Thanks for joining me. I'm your host Rachel Park and I'm a critical care nurse, academic and researcher from Auckland, New Zealand. This is the podcast where I talk to critical care nurses, allied healthcare team members and academics about what has been critical to their success. I do hope you've been enjoying the episode so far. This is episode number five, recorded in November 2018, and today I talk with Glenn Eastwood. Glenn is the Intensive Care Research Manager at the Austin Hospital in Melbourne, Australia. He is one of Australia's most experienced and successful intensive care nurse researchers and presents often at local, national and international meetings. He's also the Chief Investigator for the TAME study, an international multi-centre randomised control trial investigating whether the use of targeted therapeutic mild hypercapnia can lead to improved neurological outcomes in patients admitted to ICU after an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. This is a large trial that will enrol 1,700 patients around the world. Glenn is a passionate family man. He has 14-year-old twins, enjoys gardening and travelling, and often heads out cycling. He's also a keen Twitterer, you can follow him on his Twitter handle at EastwoodGM. Glenn and I talk about how nurses make great researchers, how we often apply therapies to a patient but not necessarily involve them in their care, how a PhD is a long journey but that anyone can do it with perseverance, how to choose a supervision team wisely and how to manage yourself along the way. He also sheds some light on the use of social media and positive messaging. So grab a cuppa, sit back and enjoy the interview with Glenn Eastwood. So my next guest uh, for your entertainment pleasure <laughs> is Dr. Glenn Eastwood. And um, Glenn has a couple of roles. He's the Intensive Care Research Manager at the Austin Hospital here in Melbourne. Um, and I'm talking to him today at the ANZIC Research Centre in Melbourne as well, where he holds another title of... Senior Research Fellow. Senior Research Fellow. In the School of Preventative uh, Medicine. And uh, it's a, a delight to not only have the uh, clinical role, but to then have this role here within the... ANZIC uh, Research Centre. Yeah. Uh, it's a delight to talk to you. Thank, <laughs> thanks for the invitation. Oh, thank you for having me here. It's always a pleasure to come to Melbourne and <laughs> catch up with everyone. So the role at the ANZIC RC, I guess, is probably, you know, a fairly recent um, role. And how have you found moving into this sort of university environment? Yeah, it's, the, the move's been good. It's really been a, a way to understand research from a different perspective. And it is a coordinating centre, so you get to see uh, the workings of the clock, so to speak, yeah. from the outside. Um, a lot of research is done at the at the uh, the site level and the sort of the experience of people who read papers. But to really understand the workings, uh, the effort and the coordination behind the trial has been uh, enlightening. Um, Getting to this point has been a long journey, but a, a fun one. Uh, I wouldn't say many ups and downs, but you really do learn things along the way. So my journey from being a nurse, being a bedside nurse, being a nurse in the intensive care unit, and pursuing a research uh, career uh, at the same time, um, 
has been rewarding, but then also culminated in getting to here mm. and now being able to see, wow, where can I go to in my academic uh, career, my research career? And um, the, the world is uh, an oyster, as they say. Yeah. Uh, That's quite cool, isn't it? Because um, like you say, you have all that past experience that you kind of bring into your research um, mm. and informs your program of research, which we'll go on to talk about. Um, but it still doesn't stop, does it? <laughs> it doesn't stop. And I think, you, for, for my mind, I'm always a little bit inquisitive. Uh, the, the why and how they have always been important questions for me. Um, and then also, I think in healthcare, we get the, the really the blessing of being next to patients and next to loved ones and seeing outcomes and seeing the impact of what we do. And I was inquisitive to know, how can we make this just a little bit better mm. and a little bit better? And then the focus of research helps you to step or helps you to understand your care but also helps step back a bit and then help care of others in a different way and you'll actually be caring for people in one sense that you'll never ever meet so Mm. coming up with research findings uh, that will then be read and inform someone else's practice um, is really uh, an encouraging part of what I do And, and it's sort of that that silent support that you provide to your practice and to your profession mm. and uh, I suppose in, in a more philosophical sense that's one of the drivers behind why I do what I do when I think about why I've done what I've done yeah, uh, yeah. In, a, in a sense yeah. yeah and so coming from a nursing background mm. has obviously helped inform your program of research why do nurses make good researchers do you think so so nurses uh, a work uh, collaboratively you always have a nurse nearby or or next to you so you can actually um, measure what you're doing as a clinician with your colleagues and you uh, use them as a balance or a a, a measuring stick Mm -hmm. I, i need to be doing a bit better and you role model you understand what the others are doing and they do a really good job and i want to be more like them so it's at your own behest to do a little bit better and nursing as researchers, it's all about the the here and now, what you're doing in, in practice. So you, you're caring for someone, you can see what is happening right there and you see the outcome of what you do or what you don't do. Yeah. <laughs> um, not only with the patient, but with the, the relative or loved one nearby. Um, and then that guides your practice. And as long as you're a thoughtful, reflective clinician, you, every day is an opportunity to learn and every day you'll bring something new, not only for that patient, but then learn for the next one. Mm. So I think nurses um, are very uh, well positioned to identify where gaps in not only their own knowledge are, Mm. but as a team, and then as a team work together to make the best improvements because Mm. you have the ability to um, make a change throughout the whole shift or your whole unit and then over the each shift and unit over each day and then over the year you'll make better and better decisions as a team and then collective um, thought will be will be rewarding mm. yeah. so a lot of your research has been around initially oxygen therapy and then moving into sort of the more mm. the um, you know sort of other side of <laughs> ventilation as well yeah. um, post cardiac arrest but how did you sort of get the interest in, in the oxygen therapy to start out with? And so, so to go right back to the start, was it was involved in intensive care patients and the care of um, intensive care patients, and they often receive mechanical ventilation or 
low-flow oxygen therapy or more non-invasive oxygen therapy devices. And I felt that this area of non-invasive therapy, although not as uh, sexy or as exciting mm-hmm. as, as invasive ventilation, was still an important component of what we did. Mm-hmm. And it actually consumed quite a lot of our nursing time. We have to educate the patient. We have to try to keep the device on. We have to put it on when they pull it off. Was there troubles with the, the usability of it? And I think we had the... My, well, my impression was that we were applying a therapy to our patients but not involving them in the care. So my thesis was looking at uh, low-flow oxygen therapy for patients at risk of respiratory dysfunction. And that tied in a few key aspects of monitoring, assessment, and device use. And it was these common or common-threaded areas about oxygen therapy that I felt we could improve and was really trying to improve my own practice about mm. device selection, monitoring, documentation, and action that led to the thesis mm. taking shape. And the thesis that I did at uh, through Deakin University with two professors, well, three professors, but one uh, left, um, was, was really about Im- improving this complex intervention in a complex setting. Mm. And I think we did a good job. But uh, <laughs> it led to a few papers and led to some understanding, um, and it was definitely research training, um, which I believe what the, the PhD journey is all about. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, and I was talking about that with somebody else actually, is that you know you undertake, starting with your master's and definitely with your PhD, what you're doing is 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 about the journey, not necessarily the destination, isn't mm. it? And, and gaining those skills to become an independent researcher. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people sort of assume that doing a PhD is um, answering a question. It's, you know, the sort of be-all and end-all, but not necessarily. Yeah, the, some of the key highlights I, uh, on reflection, have learned about doing the PhD was that it actually helps you to refine the process so that you are clearer on your research question. The research question has an aim. The aim has objectives. Mm-hmm. Different objectives lead to your method. Your method's have data collection that data then needs to be analyzed in a particular way because that's what the data is and that then your results are what they are and how you interpret your uh, findings is based on your results so it teaches you to bring the world down to a manageable size and that yes you have to place your research question into uh, the setting be it critical care um, but then which aspect of critical care is it and how does that apply right now? And mm-hmm. the research training of a PhD makes you be uh, more precise in not only your research question, but how you then communicate that through the thesis. Mm. And that's how I found the journey of the PhD being so beneficial that yeah. um, it's okay to be a little bit repetitive. <laughs> if you're going to say oxygen saturation, say oxygen saturation, oxygen saturation. Don't switch it and say pulse oximetry or oxygen tension or something just you've got to be clear yeah uh, so yeah. little things like that you, you learn along the way so um, I think that the PhD journey ends at a degree but then the degree itself uh, opens up other, other doors yeah do you think anyone can do a PhD so you know often people think it's too hard or it's you know beyond their capability or um, that they're not the right sort of personality type? Uh, no, there is. There, you, you need to be motivated and motivate yourself, but there is no reason why anyone couldn't pursue a PhD. Um, they need to be just clear and honest to themselves that that's the undertaking that they want. 
and then they need to be dedicated to to doing it. The PhD, from my perspective, was a long journey. Mm. I I took nine years to complete my PhD, but each year was one a little bit further, and it was a one that you could celebrate different milestones. Um, so it's about perseverance, mm. and it's not that they don't. They don't hand out PhDs to people who don't finish. Yep. They do hand them out to people who do finish. So you need to maintain that momentum yourself. And I always had that goal in mind that I would see myself on stage and I would have my family there with me when I graduated. And that was a motivational factor. Mm. And we got there. We got there. So if you, you're persistent and, and um, accept that it's going to take some time, you'll get there. But there's nothing to stop people, mm. anyone, from, yeah. from pursuing it. Um, and I think maybe if we're all a little bit honest, those who do PhDs will go, yeah, I think anyone else could do it. Because if I can do it, I think you can do it. <laughs> um, I did mine uh, while I worked full time and um, PhD was a part time job. Mm. And that's kind of how I treated it as a part time job. Um, it was it required dedication and time and giving up some other things to focus on it. Um, but then I used it as role modeling as my children were growing up. It was, look, Dad, dad's going to do some extra work and it's his, his job and and it achieved a nice outcome. So mm. there's also these extra benefits for what you do as a, to benefit yourself as a PhD, but then that role modelling for those around you, be it family mm. or colleagues, um, and that, that's just as important. Mm. I think that's really a, you know, a good thing to mention is that it isn't just for your benefit often, is it? And the, mm. the intangible benefits for all those around you, yeah. um, like you say, the role modelling for your children or your colleagues and showing that you can do this yes, yeah. <laughs> and that it doesn't have to kill you in the process. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. It's just, um, like I said, it took nine years, so I definitely mm. worked. I had holidays. We, we changed house. Uh, the kids eventually went to school. So um, it doesn't have to be your life. It's a part of your life, and why not be proud of it and, and see it that way? Mm. But each journey will be their own. Uh, yeah. But definitely, if people have a sound research question and a research idea, it then becomes uh, important for those around them to really focus that attention and say, look, we can take this further, or this is where it best sits, and learn from that, yeah. learn from it that way. So you mentioned your supervision team and that mm. you started out with three supervisors. <laughs> Didn't did. quite get them all to the finish line, but um, yes. do you want to tell us a little bit about how you chose your supervision team to start out with and what you sort of looked for? Yeah. So... Doing a PhD through a university, you need a university-led primary supervisor, and that primary supervisor for me was Professor Beverly O'Connell, and she had skills in methodology and and but also she had previous experience in getting other PhD journey, people through their journeys, mm-hmm. and it was someone that I had met and spoke with prior about the the idea of what I was wishing to pursue. She was in um, the School of Nursing, which was fine. It wasn't exactly critical care. She was more um, aged care focused. But I then had a secondary supervisor who was more critical care focused and not primary, but had a, had a, a complementary secondary supervisor, mm-hmm. also at the university, so that should the primary one have left or moved on, we, you have backup and you have continuity in, in knowledge. Um, subsequent to that, I had a clinical supervisor at the hospital and that was important because it helps to bring the clinical application of my topic back into the academic setting. So the value of a clinical supervisor cannot be understated, uh, probably should be more of them, mm-hmm. and is definitely an area in which I would 
advocate strongly for, for nurse researchers to have strong clinical supervisors in the future. One of my supervisors left to take, uh, take a different role in a different university, which was fine. So we then included um, and, in, and invited Professor Julie Considine to be uh, one of my supervisors and she was uh, wonderful. She was from the emergency department, had an uh, interest in um, quantitative research and was clinically active uh, herself. So I had this mm. wonderful marriage of a, uh, supervisors who were academic, scholarly, methodological, as well as um, academic, practical and mm. applied. And so I was uh, well supported in, yeah. in, in the question that I could ask, the methods that we were going to use, how we were going to analyse it, and also the, the clinical importance of what we were finding. Mm. So um, I was looking for that in Have my supervisors. Yeah. yeah. But the supervisors are uh, looking for students and you're looking for a supervisor. So it's a, a quid pro quo. You need to uh, speak and, and, and go meet them and see, look, gee, can I really work with this person? Um, because it's going to be a long time. Mm. Um, <laughs> do you, would I like to like have a cup, cup of coffee with them? Can yeah. I spend some time in the, in a in an airport lounge, so to speak? <laughs> uh, um, it's, you're not always going to be friends, and you're not really really there to be friends. But it, it's it's definitely worthwhile to be friendly, mm. and uh, that's another sort of test that you need to go through. Yeah, balancing um, their characteristics and your characteristics as well. Yeah, I think that's really important, isn't it? That ability to get along and be able to take feedback from people yeah. <laughs> and yeah. give them feedback as well. Um, recognising that you might not always agree with what they have to say. Those two aspects are uh, crucial to any relationship uh, and key to a PhD, supervisor, super, uh, student role. Um, not always easy to hear feedback, but what I learned most from the feedback I received was that um, it's you have to bring the reader's mind into the world that you're thinking and they would provide very good uh, positive feedback to written reports uh, that we would submit introduction literature reviews mm. and then methodology and uh, the super supervision was fine mm. uh, key to supervising uh, was regular um, meetings we mm. would make the next meeting at the end of the one that we were just finishing didn't need to necessarily happen but it needed to yep. be in the diary so that it got yeah. locked in so there was a meeting probably every six weeks okay um six to eight weeks depending on what was at what stage of the research was at um, and then in, intimately could use emails mm. or even the telephone should things come up yeah so you were able to meet with them pretty much face to face most of the time and uh, I think nowadays it's easier with communication and yeah. Skyping and Zooming, but back, uh, where was in there? <laughs> back in the 2000, old days. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was actually more beneficial to meet physically. It, yeah. and meeting, it made deadlines, it made you write things, it made you achieve what you were saying you were going to do <laughs> and uh, keeping to some deadlines. So the meeting is a, is a motivator. Mm. Yeah, we, did, yeah. we did that way. <laughs> And did you have agendas and um, before the meeting to sort of keep everyone on track and um, raise what you wanted to discuss at the meeting? It would be in a minimal form, not mm. as formalised as I would like to do it now. So mm. the, the advice to my future self or future students <laughs> would be to try to have a more structured agenda. Yeah. And that agenda naturally moves as your study moves. So the early mm. agendas were going to be about timelines and... Uh, concept generation and literature review then next agenda might be about ethics and 
know, you know, feedback to mm. uh, ethical review comments, and then you'll move on to the recruitment phase. But an agenda uh, does help you to focus the meeting and then come come away with tangible actions to do. So mm. Um, mm. that's what I would need to do better. Yeah, I wouldn't say next time. Don't tell, <laughs> don't tell my wife there'll be a next time. In the next but, PhD. Uh, yeah, the next PhD. But for the advice that I give to students and the advice that I give to people that I do research with, mm. which will research with, is along those lines. Just uh, write things down, set yourself some goals, and have a come come to meetings with with actual questions, not just a summary of activities. Mm. And then you'll get more out of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, keeping keeping up regular meetings for what nine years that's quite a challenge too isn't it yeah, it was the, the other thing with the, with the extended period was not only with the regular meetings but as you progressed as a student you became the older student and you'd done the literature review you'd done your hurdles you'd done your first study you'd done a presentation then by the end of it the fourth and fifth and sixth years you you'd you'd actually become a, sort of a more mature PhD student that then you were giving advice to more junior PhD students mm. and that was rewarding and encouraging as well and then towards the write-up phase you get more interested in how do you write the thesis and what how do you focus on it and how do you review it and then you take advice from people who were, were like you just there a little while ago mm. uh, and then you are able yeah. to finish it off. So where you were doing your degree at Deakin University um, did you have regular sort of catch-ups as a group of PhD students? More towards the end of yeah. my uh, research years, it got more formalised, which was uh, encouraging. And I think there was a greater switch towards the end to actually have a more formal initial year about research methods, designs and writing that I would have benefited from, mm. but kind of got through in the old school method of uh, my thesis was examined by itself, so it was a standalone piece that we had written, reviewed, and submitted, and had uh, external reviewers plus an Australian reviewer mm-hmm. to to um, grade the thesis. I think nowadays there's far more support given to students in relationship to academic writing itself, referencing, maintaining um, uh, sort of your own uh, intellectual property. So it's really focusing on scholarly work that's not plagiarized or mm. borrowed and then they really do guide you well through the writing and handing in stage yeah. uh, nowadays and it's far more focused on supporting supervisors to be better supervisors um, I notice here at Monash University there are uh, um, and I believe it would be similar in most universities <laughs> that there is support for supervisors and mm. training and ongoing education to how to be a better supervisor mm. because that's uh, that's key as well. Well, because often supervisors are kind of dragged into the supervisory role, aren't they? Um, either for their content expertise um, or because they've taken an appointment at a university and suddenly that's what they're having to do mm-hmm. and so I think often we um, expect quite a lot from our supervisors that maybe they haven't had the training or the experience to actually undertake the role. Um, what sorts of things do you think we should expect from our supervisors in terms of keeping us on track? So like ourselves if we're going to make a meeting we should stick to the meeting uh, expect of them what we should expect of ourselves in the sense of meeting our own deadlines if we're our own commitments mm-hmm. if you um, say you're going to do something 
try to do that objective, whether it's read or review an article or whether it's trying to make a deadline with an ethics submission or a grant application. Mm. I mean, you need to um, be, be clear on uh, and know, be, be clear and comfortable to say, I don't know what I don't know. And sitting at home as a student, you can waste a lot of time um, rewriting that paragraph or thinking about getting around to it. I think aiming for perfection in our writing is going to be too difficult. You need to share what you're doing and share it frequently so that you get that that feedback. Um, probably at times I had um, spent too long writing paragraphs or chapters and not sharing them with my supervisors. Your supervisor wants to see it and they mm-hmm. wants to want to help you to develop. So I think it's that keep keep using them. A squeaky wheel will get get mm. um, get attention, mm-hmm. and it, the supervisor will also say if you ask them how you're going, they'll tell you. So mm. uh, some just communicate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how did you keep yourself on track over nine years? You know, how did you make sure you were constantly kind of chipping away and achieving your targets? Uh, so because I was working full time and our family was growing, I was pleasantly distracted by those other activities that then made the importance of doing the thesis or the research and work for the thesis um, important but separate. So it was, ah, I can go do this now, then come back. So Mm. I tried to see them as as, uh, working together, but it did take time to, you you have to work between nine and midnight or nine and one in the morning and do your normal shift work. Mm. Um, That was hard. but I think I just enjoyed, yeah, work and life and still being a part of activities. And almost mm. in conversations with family and friends, you, you give them a snapshot into what you're doing, but they kind of like that you're a PhD student. People understand that that's a very high level of, mm. uh, of scholarly achievement. So it's kind of like, I'm a PhD student. You've got, you sort of got to own it a bit. Yeah, yeah. And I think that was kind of fun at times. My mum definitely loved it. She loved it. <laughs> and my dad, they're very proud, which, is, um, which makes me proud. But yeah. Uh, that's what gets you through and then these milestones celebrating milestones knowing you're not mm. just at the start anymore and uh, publications are important presenting important and gee you know if my supervisors are asking me to do that oh, they must be thinking I'm doing a good job and again if you persevere and continue to get there you maintain your own enthusiasm because you know A it'll stop eventually as long as you hand it in and then if you hand it in um, you get to have the three little letters you want so much mm. um, and mm. then that's kept with you ever after yeah so I think one of the best things i saw was phd which means pretty huge deal <laughs> uh, it is a pretty huge deal and it does yeah. it is something that um you know you work really hard for and like you say celebrating those achievements along the way kind of makes it bearable <laughs> yeah it's like finishing data collection or writing the first chapter they, they don't overthink milestones or celebrations need to be about big things it's the small things it's um, you made it through the christmas okay cool it's there are lots to be grateful for that you move along, and I, I think, although I did many years, I had many things to be happy about. Mm, mm. Um, one of the things you mentioned too was taking opportunities, I guess, that present themselves along the way, for presenting your work. Um, mm. Not necessarily, you know, maybe publishing. Um, what other sorts of mediums did you use along the way in order to kind mm. of? highlight what you were doing and motivate yourself i guess too so being having a research 
question that was based clinically and doing an academic thesis was allow me into two worlds. You present to your nursing students and your nursing uh, academic colleagues, but then you have to actually make your research translatable at the bedside into your mm. clinical staff and you provide feedback that way. So I was able to talk about my research to my colleagues, mm. talk about it at local nursing conferences, be invited to sort of more regional meetings and talk about it there. Mm. You highlight yourself as an up-and-coming researcher, you begin to then network with other people, and then back at the university, you're progressing, you're, you're, you're your supervisor's golden egg. You're, <laughs> here they are for you to help, they're progressing well, this student's getting nearer completion, so you're actually able to expose yourself to other people, mm. and that's how you uh, were able to demonstrate what, what the benefit of what you're doing and maintain enthusiasm. Mm. with your project so I was very lucky that I had a sort of a clinical uh, branch to what I was doing yeah and so you were working in your research coordinator research manager Mm. role alongside Um, tell us a little bit about how your research team works in your ICU at the Austin Hospital so I'll take you back just a tiny bit bit earlier so I was doing my PhD while working at the bedside And then about halfway through, I transitioned from the bedside role into the ICU research manager role and was able to continue my thesis. So even though you change roles, you can still keep up your your research endeavours. My role now is to help manage and coordinate the intensive care clinical trials and studies that we do at the Austin Hospital in the intensive care unit. We have quite a small group of um, people uh, really, so we have Professor Ronaldo Belomo, who's the Director of Research. Then there is myself as the Manager of Research. And we have two research coordinators, Helen Young and Leah Peck. It, aside to that, we have numerous research fellows from overseas that come to spend one month, three months, one year, two years with us. And they may work just as, as observers of clinical research or clinical and research roles mm-hmm. um, so it's the wonderful influx of ideas and personalities that makes my job very rewarding there is naturally uh, you need to balance getting things done and making uh, teaching research mm. and doing research so it's a it's a balancing act but it just shows that you can um, integrate your own research endeavors into your role and support it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, we do a array of studies, but they're audits, observational work, pilot studies, clinical trial group studies, and it's just wonderful to have these options to then go to the bedside and try to learn. And when I speak to staff or speak to families or speak to p- patients as potential participants, we describe it as an opportunity to learn above the care that you're giving. And we have a glimpse into different aspects, be it uh, oxygen, fluid, diet, sedation, mm. uh, haemofiltration to help advance what we're doing. And that's what I find quite rewarding there. Um, and how do you get the bedside staff involved in the research? Are they, are they keen to be involved for a start? Is research seen as an important part of a patient's sort of care package within the ICU? It certainly is. We have a wonderful research culture at the Austin mm. Hospital and the culture is that intangible element of, of uh, making things happen in a way that it wouldn't, wouldn't normally happen. Um, we round in the morning purposefully, doing a screening round for research, so that we see the night staff in the morning, then we see the day staff during the day, 
and towards the end of the day we actually see the evening staff. So during the week we actually see all three shifts pretty much each day during the mm-hmm. week. Um, we're happy to be called out of hours despite that what that may mean <laughs> but it really is just to answer questions that uh, come up because it shows that the staff care for their patients and safety is important. So I'd rather them call me because then it shows that hey, there may be a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd rather them feel like they can call me because that's happy that they're happy to share a problem should it be happening. Um, that's really key. What I do love is that either I come to the bedside or they come to my office and find me. <laughs> and if they come and say, Glenn, I think we've got a patient, which happens, I think we're doing things right. Yeah. Where the staff are engaged enough to leave the bedside, to come and say, to hey, Glenn, come back and have a look. Yeah, yeah totally. And uh, that's really important. Yeah. On the doing side, it's important just to keep the message quite simple at the bedside. Mm-hmm. Not that it's dumbing anything down. It's just, can you do this, not that? Uh, do this, and if this happens, do that. They're already doing a wonderful job and a complex job managing multiple mm-hmm. things at the bedside that you want the research uh, intervention, be it please record the, record the CVP or please tell me why you gave that fluid bolus or make sure that urine output gets collected every six hours. You want that to be the only thing they're thinking of so at cool. that moment mm. yeah leave the the research proposal and hypothesis and consent issues to the research team that's mm. what we're there for mm. you please deliver the best care plus this intervention mm. and and i think that's what makes it work we work really hard to keep that message simple really hard to send out positive emails mm. uh, really hard to send out constructive emails that need to say can you stop doing that that's not so good uh, and uh, we have to play a good cop, bad cop. Yeah. And it's simple messages at the bedside um, and being being approachable mm. are key to building research culture. Yeah. And what about building um, rapport and introducing the idea of research with both patients and oftentimes it's actually their families initially, isn't it? Because the patients are very often unconscious um, and we can't talk to them about research for you know a little while until they recover. So... Mm. What sorts of um, ideas do you have around introducing research to families at the bedside? So it's again about being visible, uh, approachable but calm, and coming to them honestly. And by that I mean, hello, my name is Glenn. I'm part of the team. My role here is the research manager. Can I have a minute of your time? And that's all it takes mm. because they're seeing lots of faces. Mm. They care. The, the loved one's in a, uh, a very strange environment. They're very unwell. And all the relative, in one sense, wants to know is who are you and what do you want? Mm. And if you spend a little bit too too long either trying to over-justify why you're there or not getting to the point, you're actually yeah. missing the point. It's, it's, it's about, yeah, coming to them honestly and quickly mm. and... In, in a lot of the way that I see it is offering an opportunity. She said, look, I'm just here to talk about it. Mm. Um, tell me what you think. Or please tell me what your loved one would think. And what, mm. what, what, what would they feel about being a participant? And um, we have the opportunity to learn. And, and using the bedside almost as a show and tell. As you can see, there's fluid given. As you can see, the ventilator's working. As you can see, we're writing things down so that we can monitor progress. Would it be okay if we learn from what we're doing? And I think that's a, a very uh, a understandable and sensible way to approach the family at the bedside. Mm. And then if they wish, you say, I'm more than happy, let's step outside into a waiting room or interview room and, and discuss it further. Yeah. 
So that's my, that's my approach. Yeah, and I think it's always surprising how um, altruistic people are and how yes. happy both families and patients ultimately are to be involved in research and to think that it might help someone, not necessarily themselves, <laughs> true, often, um, but that it might help us learn. Yeah, the altruistic, uh, I'm always humbled by the family that gives you uh, consideration, time and then consent uh, to proceed. Mm. And that's always a, yeah, the, one of the most humbling things you see in research, mm. that at a time of distress or uncertainty, they are willing to allow you to learn mm, mm. Mm. no it's quite incredible really yeah. so glenn post phd and um sort of settling back into you know did, um starting your own program of research and one of the trials that's just started is the tame study uh, which is looking at patients who have survived a cardiac arrest so do you want to tell us a little bit about um, where this trial has come from mm. and what it's aiming to determine? Thank you. So TAME is a study of a, a trial of targeted therapeutic mild hypercapnia in resuscitated adults following, following out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Um, so it's easier to say TAME. Uh, it's actually a, a research journey that commenced in 2009, 2010 and it really is a wonderful demonstration of a program of research that has led to a definitive trial being conducted now to hopefully evaluate an intervention that's looking at improving the neurological outcome of patients after cardiac arrest. So the program of research key aspects have been a retrospective study followed by a phase two pilot safety feasibility study then on into the definitive randomized control study, also supported by some additional observational studies and studies done in other parts of the world. And this uh, duration of time and weight of evidence is, is the demonstration that science moves slowly but methodologically and needs to be done in such a way that it provides a reassurance that should we, do, should we make a change, it's the right change. So programs of research, although people think, oh, gee, I could never <laughs> do one, they actually are there for the right reasons. Mm. And um, the journey of TAME has been just a, a delight. It's been one which we had a question, looking at the impact of carbon dioxide on outcome, knowing that carbon dioxide in the blood is a major physiological controller of cerebral blood flow. Um, so we had that hype hypothesis well what, what does this gas do so we look back at the Australian patient uh, adult patient database evaluated the outcomes for patients based on categorization of co2 levels mm -hmm. and it showed that p patients who survived with a higher co2 uh, went, were more likely to go home using that as a hypothesis generator mm -hmm. we did the CCC trial which was the carbon control after cardiac arrest study or the pilot study for TAME and that then demonstrated uh, say biological effect, efficacy, feasibility, separation in the intervention, mm. and pleasingly a reduction in brain injury biomarker and a trend toward improved quality of life for mm. patients who survived at six months. Using that, we then were successful to get uh, funding from the uh, National Health and Medical Research Council of Australia, along with the Irish Research Health Research Board, to do TAME. Mm. 
Mm. And then from there, we've invited our friends to join us to do the trial in other sites and in other areas of the world. So large multi-center randomized controlled trials are like you doing your trial at your place, but with friends in their places. Mm. And I, I think that helps to demystify um, what multi-center randomized trials are all about, but it also builds collegiality, collaborations, and then you have the um, reproducibility and uh, rigor that you need to support that. Or what we saw in our uh, site and our region is also what other people see. So it provides that um, uh, the transferability of results, mm. uh, believability. Mm. So it's been a hoot. It's, it's really important. <laughs> yeah. Really important, doesn't it? And that, that building of capacity and. Um, networks throughout intensive care research um, throughout the world now it has been a huge strength of the ANZICS clinical trials group, um, particularly I guess on the medical side but even more so now on the research coordinator side. Um, and you know one of I guess your strengths too has been coming from that position as a research coordinator, research manager um, and playing with a group of you know, <laughs> a large group of research coordinators throughout Australia and New Zealand. Yeah, the the growth, maturity and development of the research coordinator role in Australia and New Zealand is uh, second to none. Mm-hmm. And it is definitely a beacon of which other regions of the world could learn and grow from and develop their own research coordinator roles. And it's one that I would strongly recommend uh, we're happy to share what we know so that you don't have to reinvent the wheel. <laughs> and we've done a lot of learning along the time. Mm. Um, in my uh, re- recent past, I was very fortunate to be the chair of the ERSIG group. And the ERSIG group is the Intensive Care Research Coordinator Interest Group of ANZICS. And with, with, with that really um, wonderful group and collaboration of research coordinators in other centres around the country and in New Zealand and Australia, so countries, uh, we built a wealth of experience and the, the doing of research, the pragmatics, the, the site coordination, the, the ability to identify, enrol, screen, collect data, keep the patients safe, monitor the, uh, the intervention itself, make sure that staff were doing it is second to mm. none. And uh, we come back and meet yearly at uh, the spring research meeting, which is typically held in Noosa, Queensland. And the sharing of knowledge at our research coordinator workshop uh, is tremendous. It's a a highlight of my year Mm. because Mm. I get to be with like-minded people that are not only happy to share what we're doing, but willing to learn and listen to other approaches. And I've taken Mm. away many uh, small gems that I've implemented in practice. Um, mm. I know from you, Rachel, uh, <laughs> one of them was just a simple whiteboard with the studies, yeah. <laughs> recruitment numbers, recruitment targets, and recent achievements, and uh, simple things like that yeah. uh, are what makes it work. Yeah. So the research coordinator role has allowed me to meet others, to know that I'm not alone, then build collaborations, share ideas, mm. and understand the, and, and, and operationalize better studies mm. that I do in my center. Yeah, and there's huge strengths um, in terms of the people who are involved and their contribution to the studies that we do. What sorts of challenges are there um, in terms of building that research coordinator community? So you you need local support within your hospital. Uh, You need the backing of the nursing 
your nursing colleagues, the medical colleagues, definitely in your educators mm-hmm. uh, in the unit, and then the, the upper administration and management. It may take time to embed the research coordinator role, mm-hmm. but you, you still need to keep pushing the benefits of it by that there are uh, savings to be made financially, there are improvements in standardization of care that can be delivered, that you're now doing things in a randomized fashion rather than random fashion, mm. and that you are open and showing people that you're reflective of your practice, that you take research as the ability to improve what you're doing. Mm. So this is how we can do it. Different hospitals have different model models about how to support financially the role, whether it's through studies or through direct appointments, um, but uh, you, I can't uh, uh, highlight and mentioned strong enough that you need to have uh, or aim for full-time research coordinators and acknowledge that they are as much a a role as your educators or administering staff or your clinical staff. If we use the acronym CARE, we have clinical staff, administration staff, research staff and educators. And without all four, your unit won't be as effective as it should be or could be. And all as important as each other. Yeah, all as important. We're part of this, again, if I go way back to the watch analogy, on the surface you can tell the time, but you really need to have that good working underneath to make the time as efficient and on time as possible. Mm -hmm. And I think that's very good analogies and descriptions of, um, you know, what we should all be aiming for in terms of having these positions available and getting the right people into them and undertaking the work. And, and funding and acknowledging it financially is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's only so much goodwill and only so much goodwill that you should be expected to do. Um, but coming and providing security through a job mm-hmm. financially and appointing the role, whether it's at a, through your enterprise bargain agreement or uh, locally in a local appointment, mm-hmm. um, I can't stress enough. Yeah. Oh no, good advice, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's just something that I can see and I can see it it causes a lot of distress and uncertainty amongst some of my colleagues in other hospitals that are living study by study and Mm. um, that's uh, really not the best business model Mm. in my mind. No, No. and that's often um, how research starts, isn't it? Sort Mm. of study by study and enrolling some patients to earn some money to pay somebody to collect a bit of data. Yeah. And that's what may need to happen at certain times, mm. but keep keep the longer term goal there, but then drag that longer goal towards the nearer goal and make mm. it happen is, is what you'll need to do. Mm. Yeah. No, thank you. Um, and so I guess sort of moving on from work, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> because there is life outside work as well. Um, what do you do? You know, you have a lot of demands on your time. And so what do you find helps you sort of balance your time and have a bit of downtime? <laughs> uh, like most people, I enjoy listening to the radio. I'm more a normal sort of bit of music, bit of talkback type of gentleman. Sometimes you listen to uh, sort of more challenging talkback when you feel the mood, but otherwise <laughs> if it's a bit more uh, lowbrow, that's good too. Uh, do you ever ring up? I've never rang a station. <laughs> I've been tempted. I've been tempted to ring. Never run. Uh, maybe one day. Uh, yeah, I wonder what it'll take to cross the line. <laughs> I know, I'll be pushed. Um, otherwise, I enjoy uh, time with the family. I uh, enjoy watching them grow. Uh, as they have our extracurricular activities, you're often dragged to those. But I go there uh, willingly to see and observe what they do and try to be a part of that aspect of their life. I enjoy, 
I like cycling. I'm a road cyclist. Um, I find that helps you to a not answer emails, <laughs> and b it's a bit of time to yourself. Yeah. Um, uh, family holidays when we can fit them in. I'm very fortunate to travel around Australia, but also internationally with my family, and that's uh, so rewarding because. Uh, the things you do afterwards pop up in conversation or I saw this on telly dad do you remember when we were here dad and I was like yeah yeah it was really cool <laughs> so uh, a little bit of bit of downtime yeah. um, and uh, yeah no, a bit, uh, we have a garden so I do gardening uh, <laughs> believe it or not I enjoy the sort of sense of achievement you get after gardening it's uh, yeah. a good thing so uh, kind of normal cycling <laughs> music listening to music that's <laughs> <laughs> right I do think about research often but uh uh, look, I'm really blessed in the sense I, I really enjoy what I do as a job and I really enjoy my role as a, as a husband and a dad and a sort of a, a family guy. So I look forward to being at home and I look forward to being at work. <laughs> now, finally, we have to talk about social media. <laughs> Definitely. And Twitter in particular. Twitter, yes. So for the TAME trial, um, TAME has a Twitter Account. It's a Twitter handle. Handle. Yes, Twitter handle. <laughs> so how do you think using that is going to help the trial or the trial participants? Yeah. As a, it, it's, a, it's a new medium. It's a positive medium. It's that ability to stay current and stay in people's mind and to provide acknowledgement in a way that we weren't able to in the past. So we can acknowledge sites or we can acknowledge uh, healthcare settings to... Uh, oh, so what I meant by that was, say, Austin Health. Mm. You can hashtag them into mm. it, and then they see that you're doing something in your hospital. Yeah. Or if I hashtag a hospital in New Zealand and acknowledge the, the, the support from the Medical Research Institute in New Zealand, they say, oh, gee, you know, that, that's right. They're doing something, mm. and, and it provides that broader um, appreciation mm. and linking that it is important what you're doing at your centre because it's a part of a larger enterprise. Mm. Um, from the social aspect, it provides timely updates, it builds momentum, and importantly, from an investigator's point of view, you are hoping, or I'm hoping, to drive the narrative that as the study progresses, as it maintains, as it reaches milestones, and then as it gets towards the conclusion and the eventual publication, that people can really understand what the study was about, who it was done in, where it was done, so that they don't just take away the byline of the abstract, mm. but they have time to think about it in a more thoughtful way. And then by being engaged in the conversation, I can hopefully support the conversation. Mm. And that's what I think Twitter would do. Um, there will likely be other mediums, and I'm happy to explore them. <laughs> but it's just a nice way to quickly acknowledge and recognise milestones, achievements, and the work people are doing for TAME mm. uh, along the way. Mm. I try to keep messages brief, naturally because of the character limit, but also mm. um, positive or a little update or did you know or have you thought about or mm. um, because uh, the research is on a continuum mm. and, um, and I, tr I try to maintain a positive message. Yeah. Oh, no, I think it's a very useful um, newish tool that a lot of you know researchers are using now to provide like you say a snapshot an update um, and just keep it in people's minds um, so there's 1700 patients to enroll in TAME yeah. <laughs> and where are we up to currently we're up to 42 yeah so 42 patients have been enrolled as of today in 15 sites that have some have been active for a little while some mm -hmm. are just recently active um, and currently uh, sites are active in four countries, mm 
and over the next four to five months we'll activate approximately 10 sites per month and we ended up in about 80 sites in 16 countries mm -hmm. through Australia, New Zealand, into Hong Kong, Singapore, Saudi Arabia, into the UK, Ireland, Scandinavia, mainland Europe and including often uh, from my point of view for the first time countries such as the Czech Republic, mm. Slovenia, Denmark and the Netherlands um, and importantly that builds a network for future trials, mm. will increase the credibility of TAME but also um, uh, enable a network yeah, to, for future work mm -hmm. and importantly TAME is harmonised with the TTM2 trial and that's doing wonderful uh, work and recruitment to date. So we've harmonised, which allows patients to be co-enrolled with the same eligibility criteria, same data collection and same follow-up regime, but a different intervention so that we will learn in a scientific sense not only the impact of carbon dioxide, but also temperature. And carbon dioxide in TAME-only patients, temperature management in only TTM2 patients, but a wonderful two by two factorial design in co-enrolled patients. Mm. So the future is bright, not only for team, not only for the collaborations and networks that we will build, but also the, uh, the future from those collaborations. Mm. Oh, it's a truly global trial. <laughs> so <laughs> congratulations. And um, we look forward to, in a couple of years <laughs> time, hearing that the trial has finished recruitment. We look forward to the updates along the way, but uh, yeah, we wish you all the best for that and for whatever comes up next. Wonderful. Thank you so much. <laughs> so thanks very much, Glenn, for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that. Great to hear Glenn's take on balancing your time and how keeping it simple and being approachable are key to building research capacity and engagement at the bedside. I loved his CARE acronym, identifying the clinical, administrative, and research staff, as well as educators, are all key to the effectiveness of the ICU. You'll be glad to hear that the TAME study is progressing well. Do link up to Glenn and the TAME study on Twitter for all their updates. Thanks for listening. I'm so glad you could join us. If this is your first time listening, then welcome and thanks for joining us. If you're a returning listener, then thank you for coming back. I hope you're enjoying the experience. If you have any feedback or suggestions, I'd love to hear them. What did you enjoy? And who would you like to hear from? Would you like to make a guest appearance? Do contact me by email. And until next time, I hope this proves to be critical to your success.